Well, good morning. I understand that Pastor Jeremy and his family, they're heading back today. So hopefully they'll be back in Northern California soon. But it's exciting to be here with you uh, today. Uh, A few weeks ago, Nancy and I were able to go with Stephen and Becky to Santa Cruz for the youth retreat. And we had a great time and we laughed a lot, stayed up too late. Uh, But we also had a chance to go over the first six chapters in the book of Daniel. And uh, Stephen and I split the teaching. um, And I had chapter two as one of my assigned texts. And while I had other uh, texts to to go over, this is the one that kind of stuck with me. And so when Jeremy asked me to share this morning, I thought that I might as well share with you what has been rummaging around in my mind ever since the retreat. And for any of the kids that are here, I, I, it's quite a bit different than what we went over in Santa Cruz. So you're, you're safe. Um, you know, I'm not going to give you much historical background on the book of Daniel. Because it's essentially the story of a young man who was approximately 14 years old. Who was taken from his home and forced to live and work in a faraway country. Uh, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians overran Daniel's homeland of Judah. And took away everything of value including the best and the brightest of the young people. So Daniel and his peers were taken back to Babylon and placed into training for three years so that they could then serve in the king's government. In chapter 1, it is recorded that Daniel and his friends made the hard choice to live by conviction and trust in God rather than by compromise. The result was a graphic illustration of the sovereign power of God to honor those who honor him. In... uh, Chapter 1, verse 17, it says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. How are we doing, Bruce? Okay, good, thanks. As a result, Daniel and his friends completed their three years of training at the top of their class and that they then entered the the king's government in a low-level position in a massive bureaucracy. Chapter 2 is another example of the sovereign power of God. This story is about a crisis that arose in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1, says that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. The king was having bad dreams. And actually, we'll see that he was having the same dream over and over again. As a result, he was not sleeping. He was troubled. He was a bit depressed. He was scared. He was uncertain. He was gloomy. And as we will discuss in a few minutes, the dream was forcing Nebuchadnezzar to confront the ultimate questions of his existence. The questions that are asked not just by the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, but by all of us ordinary folks as well. Questions like, you know, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? What is going to happen next? Why and what should be the most happiest moments in my life? Am I strangely disturbed by the thought that it could all be lost in a moment? A phone call? A test result? A drunk driver? Will it all just end? Is that it? Six feet under? Or, if I'm environmentally enlightened, a pot of ashes flying over Monterey Bay, right? To the ordinary person in Babylon, they would have been shocked to think that their king, this powerful man, um, had troubles and doubts and fears of his own. I think we all got a glimpse of this this week when Robin Williams passed. 
the idea that a star of his magnitude could be troubled in so many ways is not what we expected. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, the ultimate questions of life are faced by everyone, aren't they? Nebuchadnezzar had no answers to the dream and was getting more, more concerned, more upset each passing day. So what did he do? You know, he did what's common today. He called in the experts. He called in the folks on his payroll that are there just for this type of situation. Verses 2 and 3 say, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. We are a culture of experts, aren't we? There's an expert for just about everything we do nowadays. As many of you know, I'm an attorney for AT&T. I negotiate telecommunications contracts, which means that I'm kind of an expert, I guess, in that area. But when I'm in the middle of a negotiation, I have a whole array of attorneys that are behind me. I have labor attorneys that are supporting me and intellectual property attorneys that are supporting me. I have uh, regulatory attorneys and litigation attorneys and product attorneys, and the list goes on and on. So I have a whole group of confident and competent experts behind me. But you know what? There are times when none of my peers have the answers that I need. That's the way it is with experts. There are times in our lives when life presents us with questions and problems that no experts can fix or answer. Now for me, the story gets a little funny at this point, but kind of in a perverse way. The magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and astrologers, if you don't mind, I'm just going to call them the experts going forward, uh, uh, show up. And you can tell that they're kind of a confident bunch because they kind of walk into the king and they say, O king, live forever. Tell us your dream and we will declare the interpretation. You know, they're thinking that this is going to be no problem, that this is a piece of cake this is just another day in the wonderful life that they lead, you know. And then Nebuchadnezzar kind of lets him know the bad news in verses 5 and 6, which says, The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. That's Nebuchadnezzar's favorite line. He says that like three times in this chapter. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Apparently, the king doesn't trust these guys very much. You know, he's really troubled by this dream. He wants the truth, and he's afraid that if he tells them the dream, they're just going to make up an interpretation. But if they can tell him the dream, then that gives credibility to the interpretation, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. But you've got to figure out that this kind of popped the balloon of the experts, right? They realize right away that they are in big trouble. So they go back to the king, and they're going to ask him again, King, remember the protocol. You tell us the dream, right? And we'll tell you the interpretation. You know, let's do it that way. It's worked so well for so long. Um, but the king, shall we say, did not respond too well to this second request by the experts. In fact, he accuses them of stalling and conspiring to lie. And for good measure, he repeats what the penalty is going to be if they don't do what he asked. At this point, I can just kind of see the scene. You probably can too. The experts, they ask for a caucus, meaning they want to go into a separate room. And they go in there and they start talking, they start looking in their reference books. What do we do in this situation? 
And pretty soon they just realize that they are just in a world of hurt. So they decide to go back to the king and tell it like it is. So in verses 10 and 11, the astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Now, I obviously disagree with the, the, the beliefs of the experts, you know, and the way that they live. But I've got to tell you that I kind of like these guys a little bit. You know, would that the experts of our day would have the guts to say, no man can do this, this is a God thing? I appreciate their honesty. I also wish that we'd see this, some of this honesty in our presidential debates. Wouldn't you just love for Jim Lehrer or Anderson Cooper to ask a question of one of the candidates and have them say, well, Jim, I don't have a clue. I, I would vote for that person in a second. I got to tell you right now. And it kind of reminds me of something Winston Churchill said a long time ago, um, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but still with biting accuracy when he says, the main qualification for political office is the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, and to have the ability afterwards to explain why it didn't happen. We, however, want a guy who knows all the answers, all the time. Uh, but these experts have the guts to say, you're asking something out of our league. And they were right, of course. They couldn't handle this problem, a problem that only God could really solve. Now, I'm afraid that the, uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar was not quite as impressed by the experts as, as I am. Um, he didn't applaud their, their honesty. In essence, he said, boys, you know, you're out of luck and you're out of time. And in a rage, he ordered that all the, the wise men in the kingdom were going to be killed. Not a good day. Uh, up to now, we haven't seen Daniel in this story at all. But with an ominous tone, the writer says in verse 13, So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Before we get to Daniel, I want to make sure we understand that the magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and astrologers were only half right. It is true that only God has the answers to the ultimate questions that we face, but they were mistaken on the second part. Maybe they weren't. Anyway, we'll keep it there. Um, they said in the last line that the gods do not live among humans. In other words, they were saying, you know, the gods don't hang around down here and tell us these kinds of things. We can't just ask them and expect an answer. We don't hang out with the gods like they're our friends. Yet in Scripture, yet Scripture says in John 1, 1 and 1, 14, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John fifteen fifteen. John quotes Jesus as saying, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. We were created to live in a garden and to walk with God in the cool of the day. The consistent theme throughout all of Scripture is that God is the one who pursues a relationship with his people. God experienced this, 
And today, through Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. So where do we go when we face the ultimate question and we don't know what to do? We can try to handle things on our own, which is what Nebuchadnezzar tried at first. Or we can try to find an expert, which is Nebuchadnezzar's second option. Or we can go to the living God who knows us, who made us, who loves us, and promises to begin to make sense of our experience and existence when we come to him. So now we get to Daniel. In verse 13, we saw that soldiers had been sent out by the king to kill the wise men, including including Daniel. Who knows exactly where Daniel was? He may have been at work. He may have been at home. He may have been on the golf course. We don't know for sure. Uh, But when the commander of the king came and found Daniel to break the bad news to him, we see that Daniel, in contrast to the all-powerful king, knew where to turn. In Daniel, we see a young man in relationship with God, and through that relationship, demonstrates that God really is the answer to life's ultimate questions. As we move through these verses, I want you to notice five things about Daniel. First, Daniel was wise. Uh, Verses 14 to 16 say, When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So Daniel is described as responding with wisdom and tact. Daniel knew that he had to do something. He just couldn't sit around. He wasn't fatalistic in any way. Yet when he did act, he didn't just jump into the situation without thinking about it. We don't know all that he said to Ariok. But we do know that he was somehow able to get all the facts and he was able to get an audience with the king. Part of being in a relationship with God is knowing on a very practical level how to deal with people with discernment and fact. How many of us and how many situations have we faced where we've blown it because we jumped in head first without even thinking about it, let alone without seeking God's counsel on it? So Daniel acted with wisdom and with tact. Second Daniel was, was bold. We're told in verse 16 that he went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. You know, that's a gutsy thing to do because the king had already said, time is up. Daniel could have been killed on the spot. But the king said yes. He gave him the extra time, and we don't know exactly why. Nebuchadnezzar was willing to give him the extra time, but I wonder if it was something about this young man's confidence before the king to make such a bold and matter-of-fact statement. The truth is, there is, a ti- there is a kind of fearlessness at times that goes along with being in a relationship with the living God. It is that kind of fearlessness which allowed Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's that kind of fearlessness that allowed Paul, that allowed Peter to say to the Jewish Sanhedrin, we will obey God and not man. And these moments of truth in these moments, the truth of what we've seen and what we heard needs to be said, and God will give us the courage to do so. Third, Daniel was prayerful. After meeting with the king, what do you think Daniel did? You know, what would you do? I think that I would probably go and check out the status of my passport, or I would go to the library and check out a book on the abnormal psychology of kings. Uh, in verse 17, however, we see that Daniel went straight to his friend's apartments 
and asked them to start praying. It wasn't enough for Daniel to go home and pray by himself. Daniel knew there was a need here for God's people to gather and storm the gates of heaven in a type of concert of prayer. The prayer, as set forth in verse 18, was pretty basic, right? It was simply, I'm sure there is more, but what's recorded is the prayer was that Daniel and his, and his friends would not be executed. Pretty basic, right? Save me. We've all prayed that prayer. Um, but would that we would be so specific in our prayers. And would that we saw urgency in prayer as these teenagers did. Would that we saw prayer not as supplemental in our life as a church, but as fundamental. And would that we all had a small group to run to and request prayer from when we needed it. In verse 19, we're told that during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I love this. Daniel went home from the prayer meeting and apparently went to sleep. You know, what confidence he had. Um, and while he's asleep, God reveals the mystery. So Daniel gets the vision, and he immediately breaks out in this hymn of thanksgiving that's recorded for us in verses 20 to 23, which is read earlier by Kat. Thank you, by the way. This is the fourth thing. Daniel was thankful. Daniel praises and thanks God, not just for answering their prayer and revealing the dream and its meaning, but also what he learned about God from the dream. He learned that wisdom and power belonged to him. He learned that God was in charge of history. It is he who changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He learned that God indeed does reveal his profound and hidden things to his servants. So when God moves in your life, when he reveals something of himself to you, when he answers a prayer for you, or when he shares something of his wisdom and power with you, do you take the time to thank him? Do I take the time to thank him? Are your prayers, are my prayers, laced with thanksgiving and praise for God for who he is and what he has done for us? Or like mine, or like me, are your prayers often just a kind of reading off of a grocery list of prayer requests for the Lord? And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if all of us just spent 30 minutes this week in prayer, praising God for who he is. Not 30 minutes every day, just 30 minutes for the whole week. We left our prayer request behind and just praise God for who he is. You know, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? I wouldn't dare dare you to do that, but I just mentioned it in passing. Sorry. I want you to notice something at the end of this prayer in verse 23, which will lead us to the fifth thing that we final, and the final thing that we learn about Daniel. Notice at the end of the prayer in verse 23, he uses the first person plural. He says, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made, me, you have made known to me what we, that's the first person plural, asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Even in his prayer, he is, he is mindful of the fact that this was a team effort. Without his friends' prayers, there never would have been a hymn of praise in the morning. 
His humility is even more pronounced the next day when he goes before the king to tell the king what the dream is and to interpret the dream. Let's look at what he says starting in verse 27. Daniel replied to the king. This is the next day. He goes in. Um, Daniel replied to the king, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I, am, I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Daniel wants to know, wants the king to know that it's not about him, it's about God. He wants the king to know that there is a God in heaven and, there is a, and this God delights to reveal the mysteries to his people. And he reveals his mysteries to people not because they are wise, but because he cares about them and longs to be in relationship with them. Daniel won't take any credit for what he's saying. He's not looking for a promotion. And I've said this before. If I were up there, I think there would be a bit of promotion, self-promotion going on, you know, along the lines of, King, I'm your guy, right? King, you need me, right? And wouldn't, wouldn't you all be doing that probably? Instead, Daniel is saying, King, you don't really need me, but you really need to meet my God. Daniel's response exhibits true humility in a mighty way. Now, humility is a difficult thing to uh, define, and it's certainly a difficult thing to maintain in our own lives, right? That is why it's important for us to take a minute and look at this remarkable young man and how he handled this. C.S. Lewis talks about humility as being a type of self-forgetfulness. Robert Foster. I can do this. Robert Foster talks about humility as a recognition that we are totally dependent on God. It is God as being our sole resource. You know, humility has nothing to do with artificially putting ourselves down. What humility is all about is seeing things accurately. Seeing ourselves accurately, both our strengths and our weaknesses, but then seeing God accurately and recognizing that his glory and honor and majesty are so far above us that our only reasonable response is to worship and bow down before him. Humility before God is at the foundation of these other things that we just talked about in connection with Daniel. It's humility that makes us thankful. Because if we don't depend on God as our sole resource, then we are either going to believe that we've earned whatever it is that we receive based upon our own actions and our own strengths, or we're going to feel that, gee, I was lucky, I was fortunate, I was in the right place at the, wrong at the right time. In either event, where there's no reason to be thankful. Uh, it's humility that makes us prayerful. Because if we don't depend on God as our sole resource, then there is no way we're going to pray on a consistent basis. Instead, we are going to rely on our own strength, figuring that we are going to sink or swim based upon our own abilities, meaning that, that there's no need to pray. And heck, if we're doing it all on our, by ourselves, we have no time to pray. Or we are simply going to view these situations as, hope, as hopeless and do nothing. 
And again, there's no point in praying. It's humility that makes us bold. Because if we don't depend on God as our sole resource, then we're either going to rely on our own ability to be aggressive and assertive and definitive and decisive and being a risk taker, all of which the world applauds as being bold and strong, right? Or we're going to be fearful and largely frozen in place and do nothing. Without total dependence on God, we will be living in one extreme or the other. And the sad thing is that most of us go back and forth between those two extremes in each situation that we face. We're bold one minute and we're frozen the next moment all because of what just happened. That's what happens when we're not dependent on God. On the other hand, seeing God as our sole resource allows us to walk through the situation, allows God to walk through the situation with us and carry us when that is required. He's going to allow us to use the gifts that he's given to us to, to face this challenge. Daniel, as we discussed briefly in chapter 1, had been given by God the gift of interpreting dreams. He knew that going into the situation with Nebuchadnezzar. Does that mean that his willingness to offer himself up to the king didn't involve any courage or faith? Of course not. He took the gift that God had given to him and used it in a bold way. He trusted and was totally dependent on God that the gift that he had been given could be exercised in a manner that pleased God completely. That is boldness, and that's not easy. I can't tell you how many times that I've refused to step out of my comfort zone to use the gifts that God has given to me. And I'll tell you that none of those involved a psychotic king or a life-and-death situation. I may not be thinking of my decision at the time as being an unwillingness to be bold, but that's what it was. And I may not be thinking that my decision as being based upon a lack of dependence on God, but that's what it was as well. Lastly, it is humility that makes us wise. Because if we don't depend on God as our sole resource, then again, we're either going to rely upon our own ideas and our own creativity and our own cleverness, or we're just going to assume that we don't have any answers and everything is hopeless. Seeing God as our sole resource brings into play the one who knows us, the one who knows our history, the one who knows our problem, and the one who longs to give us the wisdom that we need. If we find ourselves struggling with being thankful or prayerful or bold or wise, then we might want to check to see who or what we are really depending on. If it is ourselves or someone else or education or popularity or money or power or fear or doubt or anything other than the living God, then we have something to consider, don't we? I think that's what I've been doing the last few weeks and why I can't get this out of my mind. It just keeps going around. So how do we become totally dependent on God and see him as our, as our sole resource? I don't have a three-point application for you on this one. But I do have one of my favorite stories from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nowen, um, to share with you that I think will get us part of the way down the road. So let me read that to you. Let me take a drink first. The Flying Rodleys are trapeze artists who perform in the German circus. When the circus came to Freiburg two years ago, my friends Franz and Rennie invited me and my father to see the show. 
I will never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. The next day, I returned to the circus to see them again and introduced myself to them as one of their great fans. They invited me to attend their practice sessions, gave me free tickets, asked me to dinner, and suggested I travel with them for a week in the near future. I did, and we became good friends. One day, I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop, in his caravan, talking about flying. He said, As a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does it work, I asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I, simply, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing, I said, surprised. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe. Joe's task is to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them. He might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must, must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. When Rodley said this with so much conviction, the words of Jesus flashed through my mind. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your arms and hands and trust, trust, trust. I know that for some of you, you've let go of the bar. Or you may feel that the bar has been wrenched out of your hands. And you are waiting for the hand of God to catch you. You may feel like you're falling and falling in midair and you don't know what to do. All I can say is that scripture is clear and the book of Daniel is a graphic example that God will not drop you. Keep your arms outstretched, waiting in absolute dependence on your catcher. That is faith in its purest state, and that is what humility before God is all about. And that's the challenge that we face. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. Brad's been talking for a while, and he hasn't even talked about the dream. So this is either going to be a really long sermon, or it's going to be a really short report on the dream. Don't worry, it's the latter. For the reason that as important as the dream is, I agree with a number of commentators that the contents of the dream are not the main point of this chapter. Other chapters of Daniel, perhaps, but not this chapter. The main point of this chapter is the fact that only the one who knows the living God can interpret the mystery of the dream. That is so critical because just like Nebuchadnezzar, there are people all around us today who are terrified and who are losing their way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1 that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Daniel had a word of truth for Nebuchadnezzar that no one else could deliver. In the same way, we who know Jesus Christ have a word for those who are terrified and lost that only we can deliver. 
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 to say that it is required of the stewards that they be faithful. The mysteries of God have been placed in our hands. Who is he? What is he like? How to know him? How to find purpose? Those are the mysteries that we who know Jesus have been given. The question that confronts me with this chapter is whether I've been faithful in giving away the mystery that God has entrusted to me. But the dream, back to the dream, always back to the dream, does have an important message. It's a message that Nebuchadnezzar needed to hear. It's a message that Daniel and the other exiles in Babylon needed to hear. And it's a message that we need to hear. It's kind of the granddaddy of of all ultimate questions. It's basically who's in charge and where is this whole thing headed? In verses 31 to 35, Daniel recounts the dream. He says in this dream, the king saw a huge statue. It was divided into four parts from head to toe with each descending part being made of a different metal. The head was made of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs and feet of iron and clay. He then describes how a stone cut without human hands struck the statue at its feet, and the whole thing was crushed and became like dust blown by the wind. I once saw the Seattle Superdome when it was collapsed. Same thing, just kind of, you know, these buildings kind of collapse upon themselves when they're raised like that. It's really cool. That's how this statue was. It was just leveled from the base. And then he then saw how that stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. You can see why Nebuchadnezzar might not have liked this dream. He thought he was a statue. Daniel goes on and gives the interpretation. It's kind of a good news, bad news interpretation for for Nebuchadnezzar. He starts out saying, You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, and there is strength and glory to your kingdom that surpasses all others. You know, that's the good news. Uh, The bad news is your kingdom will be succeeded by another, and then another, and then another after that. Notice he doesn't tell us what these kingdoms are. So we need to be careful not to be dogmatic about something that is not there. What he is clear about, however, is how it all ends. And that's in verses 44 and 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God is showing the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its its interpretation is trustworthy. So we should be careful here of following the old expression of making the main things the plain things. What's plain about this passage is that God is in control of history and ultimately his kingdom will triumph over all other kingdoms. But will he triumph over this headset? History is... History is going somewhere. History will culminate in the establishment of God's reign on earth. God is in charge. A quick aside, as I think it's relevant at this point, 
to remember that, that God is not only the God of history in the big sense. He is also the God of history as concerns our individual lives. He's not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands about what's going to happen to any of us. He knows. He knows and cares and has not lost sight of the fact that we may feel like we are falling through midair with no net below us. But he has a plan for us and nothing in heaven or on earth is going to prevent him from, from accompanying or from, from accomplishing his plan for us. Let me say that again since I said it so well the last time. He has a plan for us. He has a good plan for us. And there is nothing in heaven or earth that is going to keep him from completing that plan, the plan that he has for us. So that's what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know. That's what God wanted the exiles in Babylon to know. And once again, that's what he wants us who so often feel exiled in our own land here today to know. The question for us is what do we do about it? seems to me that the most appealing decision is to align oneself with the final kingdom that is going to be coming. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did, or at least Nebuchadnezzar took a start, took a step in that direction in verse 47 when he says to Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. How do we do that? These verses mention a stone not made with human hands, a stone that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. I don't think it's any mistake that throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as the stone. As the stone. On one occasion, Jesus said of himself, the stone which the builders rejected became the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Years later, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, that the one who trusts in that stone will never be put to shame. He said to those who believe this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe this stone is a stumbling block. So the question for each of us this morning, right, is where do we find ourselves in the story? Are we a Daniel who entered into or or has entered into a relationship with the living God? And even though we don't always know what to do, we know where to turn. Or are we a Nebuchadnezzar wandering around, angry and morose and depressed because we're haunted with the uncertainties of life. And we have no idea what to do or where to turn. If we have a a relationship with Jesus Christ, then let's depend on him more and more as our sole resource in everything that we do. And let's share the mysteries of God with those around us because we're the only ones who can. If we do not have a relationship with the living God, and I suggest that you put your, your, your faith in that stone who will one day come again. Let him become the one you depend on to face all the questions in your life, the big ones and the small ones, because he, Jesus Christ, knows you and loved you enough to die for you. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. As I, as I do, I'll invite the praise team to come up as well as the men, perhaps, who are going to be um, helping with the offering. And then we'll do the offering and, and along with the last song. Um, so if, if anyone would like to talk after the service, I'll be hanging around up here for a little bit. Um,
we serve a mighty God, don't we? Who is there for us, who knows us, who loves us, who longs to be there for us. All it takes is for us to open our arms and to reach out our hands to him and to leave him there, right? Let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we, we thank you. We are humbled by your majesty and your power. We are humbled by your knowledge. We are humbled by your care for us, for your desire to, to have a relationship with us. We are humbled that we have this opportunity. Thank you that, that, that you are our catcher. That as we reach out to you, you will never let us fall. You will always be there for us. Thank you that your word is so consistent from the beginning to the end. That the theme of your word is that you love us. And that we can rely upon that. And rely upon you and everything that we face each and every day. So we thank you. We also thank you for the gifts that will be given. We pray that as we move forward as a church, that we can rely upon you as our sole resource. That we can be humble before you, seeing that all things that we do or long to do, all the programs, all the steps, come from your strength and from your grace. Help us to always focus on that. And so give us wisdom in in utilizing these gifts and bless the givers. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.